Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ross. If I've not met you yet, I get to serve here as family pastor, and I am filling in for Justin this morning. Uh, I'm here. Justin is upstairs behind that wall right there right now teaching the foundations class, so he hasn't disappeared totally. You just can't see him. Um, and we are going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're, uh, if you've been here with us uh, a while, you know we've been in Matthew for a long time, coming up on 10 months, and we are finally in the, uh, the final scenes of Matthew. We're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 27, the, uh, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. So I'm excited about our time together this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray here in a second. I'm also excited about the marriage class that's coming up tonight. Uh, if you are uh, interested in that, I'd love to have you. Uh, I will be facilitating, but I am not teaching. Don't worry. You see this relatively younger kid up here, not, not going to teach a class on marriage. But uh, we're going to be using the, the material from Paul David Tripp, and uh, I'm excited about that. There's a video series and and some, some questions that we're going to work through. So I'm really excited if you are uh, at all interested on, in growing in your marriage. And uh, uh, this would be a great uh, thing for you to come out to. So uh, I'm looking forward to that tonight at 6.30. But right now we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 27. And let me uh, pray for us. Father, uh, we believe in your spirit. The power of your spirit to change us in accordance with your word. So Lord, I pray that you would use my words uh, as broken and, and as weak as I am uh, uh, for your glory. Would your, spirit, would your spirit accompany the preached gospel uh, and change us uh, even in our seats? Would uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 56. So that's a, kind of a, a bigger chunk. And if we're going to understand this section of Matthew, we have to know what his intent is. We've been thinking about this uh, a lot throughout our various points throughout our journey through the Gospel of Matthew as Justin has led us. We want to know what is the author's intended meaning? What is his aim? And as you may remember, Matthew writes this gospel, and even this section of the gospel is crucifixion, uh, to convince his Jewish readers that they have missed their Messiah. And their biggest, his audience's biggest sticking point would have been what we're about to read, would have been his humiliating murder at the hands of the Romans. In their mind, this was the exact opposite of what the Messiah was supposed to do. And this would have not been an issue only for the, the Jews who outright rejected him. It would have also been an issue for his disciples, for those who had initially put their faith in Jesus and, and, and started following him. Uh, you, you see, it's, um, the, it would have been very easy in that day for, for doubts to arise, to creep in. Uh, you're not, you don't follow dead people. Uh, imagine being in their, in their situation. Uh, you, you're, you've left the religion that you grew up with, that you've known all your life. You've left the religion of your parents, uh, the religion of all your friends and community, and now you're following a so-called Messiah who has been 
tortured and murdered hum in a humiliating way, right? That would have been, it would have been very easy uh, to, to say, hey, where's the kingdom that this guy promised? Because even decades after Jesus' death, there was no visible kingdom, okay? So if you're, you can imagine, if you're in their position, it would have been very easy for doubts to creep in. You would have been very tempted to want to disassociate yourself from the shame and the weakness of Jesus' death. Uh, we, but we do this, we do this today uh, oftentimes. We want to disassociate ourselves from, from people that are not very impressive to us. So maybe, um, maybe there's a political leader or an athlete or a celebrity who initially you really loved. They said some great things. They performed awesome on the field. Uh, and then they said something really stupid or they, uh, that, you, that you think is stupid. They maybe had a really bad performance. And what's the first thing that you say? Oh, uh, I mean, I knew from, from the beginning he was an idiot. I, I, knew, I knew all along he was just a crock, right? And so as soon as our leaders fail us, we want to, even though we at one point like them, we want to begin to dis disassociate from them. In our message this morning, Matthew shows us the, that the very thing that made Jesus the most unattractive to his audience was the very thing that proves his legitimacy as the king of Israel. Matthew's aim for us is this. He describes Jesus' humiliating death in order to challenge his disciples to fully embrace a cross-shaped life. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. That's Matthew's aim. He wants to show that through the events that we're about to read, Jesus' death was not an accident. It wasn't a blunder or a failure. Instead, it was a great success. It was part of God's sovereign plan to redeem a people for himself. And so uh, here's the main point, kind of coming off of that. What's the main point of, of this sermon? If I could boil our, our, our sermon, this, this message down into one sentence, if there's one thing that, that, that you need to take away from this passage, it's this. Because of Jesus' humiliating death in our place, his death in your place, we can now fully embrace a cross-shaped life. You see, the story about the death of Jesus, it's not just supposed to be depressing. It's not just supposed to be a somber thing that we read once a year at Good Friday. Uh, it's not even meant to just be an inspirational story. Instead, it is meant to be a mold. It is meant, every aspect of your life is meant to be pressed into this mold that's set before us here in Jesus's final hours. My, uh, my son Micah, he's almost 18 months, he's at a stage in his development where he is absorbing and imitating everything that he sees. Anything that he sees an adult do, he's going to do. Uh, so one of the projects that, I'm, that I've been working on, or he's going to try to do anyways, one of the projects I've um, been working on this fall is starting to try to collect and split some firewood for this winter to burn in our stove. And uh, uh, and often I'll be working out there and Michael will kind of be playing in the yard or something while, while, while I'm working. And instinctively, nobody really had to teach him how to do this. He just started picking up little sticks and pieces of wood or whatever that he can find and, and throwing them in stacks, right? And just, just like I'm just trying to imitate what I'm doing. And then he sees me split 
some wood, and so what does he do? He picks up a stick that's small enough for him to, uh, for him to carry. He lifts it up and starts smacking another stick with it, right? He's imitating. He's, he's, he's molding his life after me in a small way. And if you're a parent, you know that that is, on one hand, really cool to see your kid grow and develop in this way, and then it's all, on the other hand, it's super terrifying also because they imitate uh, not just the good things but also the bad things that we do. Kids are constantly being shaped and molded into the image of what they see. And God in his goodness, he knows this. And his desire is that each one of us, like a child, is shaped and molded into the pattern of Jesus. And specifically, into the pattern of Jesus' humiliating death. Yet here's the thing. You and I resist embracing this cross-shaped life with everything that's within us. In so many ways, we're just like Matthew's original audience. We want to distance ourselves from the weakness and shame of Jesus' death. We, we assume that if humiliation, if, if pain, if rejection by others, if loneliness, if sorrow, if those things are in our life, it's because our life is completely out of control and off the rails and off its rails. So we do all we can to avoid those things. But those things are all things which Jesus himself faced and embraced. My prayer is that as we contemplate Jesus' death, we would each taste the beauty of a life formed by and molded into the pattern of the cross. So we're going to read this section in three, or three, this passage in three sections, three kind of progressing through three different scenes in, in Jesus' final hours. Okay, the first one, first of these is Jesus being mocked in the governor's hall, and that's in verses 27 through 31. Uh, we'll, we'll read that together here. In, uh, here. Matthew writes, uh, this, is after, this is after the, the trial, after uh, uh, Pilate has washed his hands of, of the guilt of Jesus' condemnation, and, uh, and after uh, Barabbas has been released, then Pilate hands him over. And he says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. All right, so the trial's over, and the sentence has been handed down, crucifixion. And we're told that an entire cohort of soldiers gather around Jesus. This is, this is about 500 men. I, one number I read was 480 soldiers, okay? That's a pretty large crowd. That's not really what I think of when I think of Jesus' final hours. I think of it kind of secluded or secret, but this is a very public, there's a lot of people around, and the first thing that they do is strip him completely naked. Uh, then they kind of set up this mock court, royal throne room scene, right? They put a robe on Jesus, kind of like a, a little half robe that just would cover, go down about halfway down the back, just a soldier's robe that was meant to kind of protect him from rain. Uh, and then they put a, 
They put a reed in his hand, like a, a, a mock, uh, like a pretend scepter, like a king's scepter. It's, it's really, we rethink of reed as a pretty like flimsy thing, but uh, this is like a staff. Uh, and then, uh, and then they put a, the famous crown of thorns on his head, a painful, uh, mocking crown. Okay, so there's, they've set him up as this pretend king, and they yell, "Hail, King of the Jews!" They all kneel down. And, but of course, what they're really saying is, "You are a pathetic pretender, a powerless peon." And to reiterate his powerlessness, they take his staff and club him over the head over and over and over again. The force of that verb, sh- to strike him on the head, it's kind of one that, of, a, of a repeated action happening over and over and over again. And here's what, I want to, here's what I think Matthew wants us to see from this kind of gruesome scene. The cross-shaped life means embracing weakness, not power. The cross-shaped life means embracing weakness, not power. Clearly, in this scene, the soldiers are the ones with all the power, right? They set the agenda for how the interaction unfolds. They torture him, uh, not only as one who's physically weaker than them, but also one who's politically weaker than them. Uh, These are agents of the imperial state, and their job, from 9 to 5, what they do is quell uprisings and revolts in the area. And they do that through whatever means necessary. Uh, and that's what they're doing here. They exert brutal strength. And, and Jesus embraces a weak and powerless posture. Now, as an innocent man, of course, he did not deserve to be treated this way. He could have at any moment said, hey, stop it. I don't, I don't, I'm innocent. I, I don't deserve to be treated this way. And as one who had access to divine power, he could have legitimately stopped it at any moment that he wanted to. So he had the right to stop it, and he had the ability to stop it. Instead, he chooses to be marked by weakness. And following him means that we will do the same. Jesus here is really just practicing what he preaches. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 21, he, uh, he, he tells us, uh, he says, when your friend uh, or your neighbor strikes you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek to him as well. For following him means we embrace the same kind of weakness. If someone were to look back on the last week or two of your life, would they see uh, someone who chooses weakness? Or would they see someone who regularly seeks to assert their own strength? Maybe not physical strength, but strength in a, in a, in a situation. Uh, and uh, regularly seeks to assert their own strength and defend their own rights. What would they see, someone examining your weak, someone who embraces weakness? When was the last time you held your tongue in love rather than retaliate or speak back with a cutting word? Jesus here shows the kind of weakness that, that I think uh, uh, oftentimes parents can, 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 um, can display. The kid that you would literally die for uh, and literally give up countless hours of sleep and emotional energy and anxiety, Uh, they yell in your face, they hit you. That's the image that Jesus here is portraying in the face of these soldiers. 
What about you? Where in your life have you been resisting the challenge to embrace weakness? All right, that's the first scene. The second scene, uh, we move from the governor's hall, from Pilate's mansion, and then the soldiers send him on his way. They lead him to Golgotha's hill. So we see him mocked on on Golgotha's hill. Uh, And we see that in verses 32 through 44. So let's read that right now. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It's, very, it's a very bitter, almost poisonous kind of uh, drink. So he's just saying, no, I'm not drinking this. Uh, and, then, and, when, uh, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Uh, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. All right, so the mocking here continues. But did you notice in verse 39, it changes. It's no longer the Roman soldiers who are mocking, but now it's the Jews themselves, the the people, passersby, and the Jewish leaders. These were bystanders that were likely uh, traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, So uh, they're coming from all over to celebrate this great, great feast that was happening this weekend, and as they go to celebrate the Passover, they mock the true Passover lamb. And notice the words that they use in their taunts. I said, you, you said you could destroy this temple that took 40 years to build and then rebuild it in three days. You can't even save yourself. Okay, so what they're doing here is they're using Jesus' own words against them. We saw uh, Jesus uh, say, declare that he was able to destroy this, the, the temple uh, and then rebuild it in, in three days. And then they say, uh, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And we've actually heard similar words to these, uh, to these as well earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapter 4, you remember that um, an, uh, another adversary comes to Jesus and taunts him while he suffers. Jesus is fasting in chapter 4 in the desert, in the wilderness. So he's tired, he's weak, he's been out there for 40 days. And Satan shows up and says, if you are the Son of God, same phrase, same, same bait that he's using, uh, if you're the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. And then he says, if you're the Son of God, then throw yourself off the temple and the angels surely will, will, uh, will protect you. But in both cases, Jesus, is, Jesus resists. And I think using the same phrase... Uh, recording this same phrase is intentional on Matthew's part. I think Matthew wants us to see a connection between these taunts that Jesus is experiencing at his death with the same taunts that he experienced at the beginning of his ministry. You see, both of these taunts are basically attempting to do the same thing. They're, 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 they're saying, uh, 
they're, they're saying that he, he should, that Jesus should use his status as the Son of God to avoid the shame and suffering of of, of the path before him. And then the, the next couple of verses, the religious leaders, they say the same kind of thing. They say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He trusts in God, let God deliver him, for, for he said, I am God's son. Right? In, their, in, in, in the humans' minds, not in Satan's mind, but in these Jewish leaders' minds, um, it was completely obvious that this idiot on the cross could never be the Davidic son of God. Because a true Messiah would never succumb to a, to a shameful death like this. But I think what Matthew wants us to see is that it is precisely because Jesus did not save himself. It is precisely because Jesus continued to stay on the cross that he was able to save sinners. The, the only road to, to bring about the glory and the prosperity and the honor of the kingdom was through the shame of the cross. There was no other way to redeem a rebellious, sin-saturated humanity. So to suggest that he could have done this otherwise, Matthew says, is satanic. And if you and I are going to genuinely identify with this king and to come follow him, then you and I must learn to embrace the the shame of the cross. There is no other way that you and I can call ourselves follower of Jesus if we don't follow him into the shame of the cross. And in fact, we, we see this same, same teaching in other, in other places in Scripture too. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews uh, in chapter 13, he, 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 uh, he, he tells us. He, uh, in, the, in the context of Hebrews chapter 13, we'll look at it in a second, uh, the author of Hebrews is comparing Christ to the Old Testament or to the, uh, to the animals that were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement in Jerusalem by the high priest. They'd bring them into these animals, pure animals, into the temple. Uh, the priest would lay his hands on the animals, and thereby transferring the guilt and the sin and the shame of, of the entire nation onto this one animal. And then they would slit, slit his throat, slit the animal's throat, and then they'd let the, all the blood of that animal drain out onto the ground. And then, because of how now, in their minds, unclean and shame-ridden and guilty and dirty this animal now was, bearing the the shame of the entire nation, uh, you couldn't just cast this carcass away, right? Uh, You certainly couldn't eat it, but you had to take it outside of the town. You had to take it outside of of the camp of Jerusalem. It had to be taken out of the presence of all the people and thrown into the, uh, the, the refuse pile, the dump, basically, the city dump. Uh, and it was intentional. That was outside of the city, away from the presence of the people. And then the, uh, the author of Hebrews says this. And he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you see, Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is suffering the same fate as this animal that's so dirty it can't even be, it can only be disposed of outside of the city, okay? And then he says, what's the takeaway from that? Verse 13. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but the city that is to come. 
My wife, uh, Monica, and I, we, uh, we moved over this summer, and when, when we were thinking about where to move, there was really a lot of places in the, in the community that we thought would be great locations for us to live, right? We weren't terribly picky about, about that, but there was one place we would never, in the King I Soldatna area, that we would never want to live. And that was the Soldatna landfill, obviously. That should be pretty obvious. We weren't going to buy a home at the landfill, right? Uh, um, you never, you'd never live at the dump. Firstly, you would, uh, it would stink, you'd stink all the time. You'd never want to invite anybody over because it's quite embarrassing to have people over to your house at the dump. And you'd probably get, contract some kind of disease. But what I think Matthew and, and the author of Hebrews in, this, in, this, in these verses are trying to tell us is that following Jesus oftentimes can be compared to selling your home, going to Fred Meyers, buying a Coleman tent, and pitching it in the middle of the Soldatna landfill. We're called to go outside the camp. Notice that Jesus was brought outside the city to Golgotha and bear the same reproach or disgrace, the same shame that he endured. Now this is obviously counterintuitive to all of us, right? No, nobody wants to do this. Uh, certainly our culture teaches us that shame should never be embraced, right? Uh, and even the Bible tells us that, that the gospel frees us from shame, right? It shouldn't enslave us to shame. And so what do we make of this? Well, what I'm not saying is that we must bear the shame of sin, either the sin that you've committed or the sin that's been done to you. Uh, that's Christ's role and Christ's alone. But we are all, we're not called to take on the shame that's been placed on us. In fact, uh, the gospel utter, utterly frees us from that shame. But the, at the same time, the gospel does call us to put on the shame that comes with associating with Jesus. So practically, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's a relationship, maybe, uh, maybe in the workplace, the, uh, there's a situation in which uh, you're being asked to do something less than ethical, uh, or, uh, over, or at least overlook it, or maybe in, endorse it. Uh, part of embracing the shame of Jesus uh, m- means risking the shame and consequences that come with standing up for injustice. Uh, parents, part, part of our role in uh, discipling our kids and raising our kids is to cast this kind of vision for them. Uh, it means, means knowing that they're going to grow up in a world that increasingly, uh, in which the, that, that increasingly paints a worldview in which the, the sexual and ethical norms are in complete contrast to the commands of Scripture. And because of that, associating with Christ increasingly becomes shameful. Are we teaching our kids, are we casting a vision for our kids uh, uh, of one of resilience in the face of social pressure and in the face of cultural shaming? Are we we preparing them with the truth that more and more following Jesus as an adult will bring them shame and dishonor rather than reputation and success? All right, so we've seen that uh, the cross-shaped life means embracing weakness and embracing shame. Now, thirdly and, and finally, we'll, we'll go to our final scene. 
the actual account of Jesus' final moments and their immediate aftermath. This starts in verse 46, or 45. <clears throat> we'll read that whole section. <clears throat> now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and, and gave it to him to drink. But, uh, but the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will actually come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, so we just read the moment uh, for which all of history had been building. And there, there's a lot here that we could dig into, um, but I want to try to summarize what's happening in, in one sentence in light, in light of what we've covered thus far. What we see here is that both Jesus' weakness and his shame are vindicated by God himself. Jesus, Jesus is vindicated by God both in his weakness and in his shame. So, um, so that's what we're going to uh, unpack here in the next couple, uh, as we, with this final, final section, okay? So, how is Jesus vindicated in his weakness? Well, we see in verse 50, uh, uh, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he yields his spirit. He gives up his spirit. Up until now, we haven't really seen hardly Jesus do anything, right? He hasn't been the driving force uh, behind anything. It's like, like we said, it was, the, it was the soldiers and the Jewish leaders who were driving the action. Jesus has been completely passive. Until verse 50. Jesus' life is not taken from him. He alone decides the hour of his death. He alone is sovereign over life and death. And he alone possesses true strength. So he yields his spirit at the exact moment that he intends. He decides when his work is finished. Alright, but then secondly, we also see God reverse not only the weakness, but the shame that's been placed on Jesus. And God does this by supernaturally summoning the powers of nature. Okay, did you, did you read the weird stuff that happened? Uh, Jesus' uh, the, the sunlight is, is, fades for three hours right before his, his final breath. And then, right after that, three things happen back to back to back. First, the, 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 um, the temple curtain is torn. Right? So in Jesus' death, the barrier that separates God and man is completely removed. And then secondly, there's an earthquake that causes the rocks to split. And then thirdly, uh, as a result of the earthquake, the tombs are opened. 
All right, and then we get a little scene from the apocalypse or something. There's zombies come out of the grave and they go into the city three days later. What's going on here? I don't know. Read about it on you know yourself. It's it's weird. Uh, but I think what we can know is a couple things. Firstly, uh, with uh, by by these Old Testament saints being raised from the dead and entering into Jerusalem, what we see here is that this, in a small way, is showing that while Jesus has been killed by the Romans, he ultimately has defeated a greater enemy, death itself. And then, secondly, I think this mini resurrection points forward to the greater and the true resurrection that will come at his return. Okay? So, he reverses Jesus' shame by defying the laws of nature. Uh, It's as if all of nature is saying, this is the Son of God. But then then he also reverses Jesus' shame through Scripture. Okay? So, uh, he... uh, in, at about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with these words, Jesus is intentionally quoting, restating the words of another king who had been anointed by God to save his people. All right, these words come from Psalm 22. And actually, this is the, the fourth time that in, in our section for this morning in which Matthew has alluded to Psalm 22. So I want us, this might be a little bit tedious, but I want us to read through the first 18 verses of Matthew, or of Psalm chapter 22 together, just to kind of get the, the taste of the context of what Jesus is alluding to and what Matthew, by including this, is trying to point us toward. Okay, so we're going to read Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but you can turn there if you'd like. David cries out. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's almost uncanny how perfectly David's experience fits with Jesus' crucifixion. 
David, he writes at one of the lowest points of, of, of his life. He's on the run. The kingdom has been stripped from him. He's been betrayed by friends. It is a time when all of God's promises seem to have been ripped away from him. And so he cries out, God, why have you abandoned me? And he, he recounts all the, the ways that he's suffered. But of course, uh, we know that God did not actually abandon David. Right? Uh, it may have felt like God had abandoned David, but we know from the whole story of David's life that God had sovereignly provided for and was working all of David's experiences for his own good and for God's glory. Uh, it's, uh, so David here is, is using the extreme language to, to describe what he's going through. Uh, it's like when I... Uh, when I set my son in, uh, at night in his crib uh, to go to bed and I walk away, he does not always like that. He doesn't like me to leave him in his crib by himself. He, it feels like to him that I have abandoned him. But of course, I haven't really abandoned him. I'm still providing for everything that he needs. I'm still making sure that he's safe. I'm still, uh, you could say, providentially making sure that, that he's taken care of. In the same way, David cries out, uses extreme language, feeling as though God has abandoned him. But of course, God is not, has not abandoned him. He's providentially still sustaining David. Jesus, though, when he quotes David's words here and cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There's no exaggeration in Jesus' words. Jesus is taking David's words and he's pushing them to their most logical extreme. For at the moment of Jesus' death, it did not merely feel as though he had been abandoned, but he had been abandoned in the most real sense possible. And this man was being, as this man was being separated from God, he was tearing the curtain in the temple in two, making a way for all of us to never have to be, be abandoned from the Father. D.A. Carson, he's a commentator, he, he puts it like this. He says, uh, on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that for all of eternity, you and I would not have to. This is what God has done in the death of his son. Because Jesus embraced the weakness and the shame of the cross, he was vindicated by God himself so that all of us who simply would trust in him can experience the life that Jesus was denied. And only by looking to what Christ has done for us could we ever hope to live for him. Only by beholding Christ who leads the way can we follow him down into a death like his. It's more important for us to know what Christ has done for us than it is to know what we can do for him. If we're honest with ourselves, each one of us is a lot more like a toddler trying to imitate his dad than we would, we, we, than we would like to admit. I mean, as much as, uh, as much as we try to maybe stack logs up, really we're just stumbling around trying to learn how to walk. And even what we do accomplish, even the ways we are able to imitate and embrace uh, a cross-shaped life, uh, what we accomplish isn't that impressive. Uh, pride trips us up. Fear trips us up. The messages of the world trips us up. Ultimately, there is only one who embraced the cross-shaped life like you and I are meant to. And because he stands in our place, he leads the way down into death. So even this week we can go 
and follow him into daily dying to ourselves. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, would you uh, use uh, your word, the truth of your gospel, even as inadequately presented, uh, to change change us? Would you make us and mold us into the image of your Son? Would you form in us uh, a cross-shaped life that we might bear witness as a people, as a community that's been formed and shaped by the humiliation and the shame and the weakness of the cross, that we might point this, world, this dying world uh, to a dead Savior who has risen again. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.